this week on the Back Table podcast. When we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's one thing. It's to improve patient care. The end. That's how I feel with why all of these initiatives are important. And we have to keep pushing them so that we can someday have a red patient, blue patient, a patient that looks totally different than us, that we can give them the same care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT, and I have a very special guest today. I have Dr. Erin Fawcett. She's a pediatric otolaryngologist practicing at the University of California, Davis in Sacramento. She completed medical school at Michigan State University College of Medicine and ENT residency at the University of Arizona. Erin pursued a fellowship in pediatric ENT at the University of Toronto SickKids, and she is here today to talk to us about diversity, equity, and inclusion in otolaryngology. Welcome to the show, Erin. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me today. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. For our audience, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Yeah, so I'm currently out here in California, Sacramento. Just moved out here a few months back from Phoenix, hot to not as hot. And yeah, I'm out here with my family. I have an amazing wife, twin daughters, age three, and just enjoying them. My little three teenagers, super cute. And my practice is all pediatric otolaryngology. In terms of my like niche, I'm into airway surgery, had all the head and neck malignancies, thyroid, endocrine are my big things. That's awesome. Well, today we're going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in otolaryngology. I just wanted to first start with if you can tell us what DEI means to you and uh, why it's important. Yeah. So, you know, I think the term DEI definitely, it's diversity, equity, inclusion kind of gets clumped together into like this one big thing. And unfortunately, for some places, it's just a check mark where they say, oh, well, we've hired these two people. We've, you know, done A, B or C. We have fulfilled this need for the year. I think when you really separate the terms, diversity are diverse humans, diverse people, whether it's through experience, if it's an ethnically racially diverse person, gender diverse, sexual orientation, religion, disabilities. These are all things that make up our beautiful humans. And so I think when, so that's the diverse part. And then you talk about equity. Equity is how are we treating everybody? Is this person getting paid the same? Is there, is, are they being treated the same? Do we have accessible buildings and walkways for people that we work with that have disabilities. And so I think that's when that's the equity part. And then inclusion is, yeah, we can have, we can bring in diverse individuals, but how are we making them included into the bigger group? And so we don't want to bring in somebody or, you know, say we're going to recruit all of these, let's say, underrepresented in medicine students, but then not have them feel included. And so it's really important to not have them exclude it. So I know that was a pretty long answer, but I really think it's important to recognize 
the difference of those terms and it's not just you know one one big thing but it's very much separate and all important no i think that's a really great point because like you said it's easy to clump it together and then just turn it into a checkbox unless we're actually thoughtful about when we're thoughtful about it we have to think about the why why is it important you know i feel like now we've you know made some efforts maybe in the last couple of years but what is it that's important about having a diverse group of individuals that are part of otolingology why is it important that you know it's equitable whether it's with our professional colleagues or how we deliver care and to make sure that okay now everybody's here that the inclusion portion as well right well so bottom line is most of us have gone into medicine to treat our patients and when we look at our country, it is changing. I think the the stat is in, I think it's in 2060, they're saying that over half of the country is going to be minorities. And so when we look at our patients that we're treating, it is known that individuals feel more comfortable, feel that they're going to get better care. If being treated by people that either A, look like them or have had similar experiences to them, with them, people that can relate. And so it's important to bring in individuals that mirror our population so that at the end, we are doing what we're here for, which is to treat individuals and treat them fairly without bias and where they feel comfortable to seek care. Yeah. And so have there been efforts, you know, from your personal experience within your hospital or institution to increase DEI in our field? Yeah, so UC Davis Medical School is in the top five of most diverse classes. And so their DEI efforts are, I am blown away by what they are doing, what they've accomplished, and what their goals are. They're continuing to seek and bring in people that are going to treat diverse individuals. So as a medical school, it's, again, I'm just blown away. Like, I think their efforts are amazing. There's always work to be done in in every aspect, but I think that they're one of the leaders in the country with that. Well, as you say, from a department standpoint, I'm actually creating our DEI committee and so I think that to mirror what the medical school is doing and mirror a lot of the other departments, I'm going to help with helping up with the help of colleagues create our department's DEI program so that we can bring in, I mean, it's on all levels, bringing in diverse residents from the research standpoint, looking at health disparities amongst our patient population, and then bringing in diverse candidates into our department. So I'm super excited about it. It's definitely been a lot of learning for me because I've been involved in a lot of these DEI committees within our specialty, but bringing it to a department level has definitely been like very eye-opening for me. Yeah. Is it because you could actually see more granular change or have, you know, there's more of a direct relationship with like your division chief or your partner's Tell me about that. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of like bringing something to like home to your family. You know, our department is pretty close. And so 
bringing in something that I care about and lots of other people in in my in my group in my department care about I think it's just this like tangible thing that now we're like wow we haven't we've I don't know if this kind of fell through the cracks or what but people are like super excited and I think that's what's been exciting but also like okay well let's like how are we going to do this right you know and our department chair he is very much like this is not a checkbox this is a necessity because of he recognizes the importance and I think I just I am lucky to be in a department like that that can you know that can support that what's great Erin is that where you are now there's a lot of people that you know believe in this have a shared value and want to push the mission forward what if you know you find yourself in a place you know for maybe potential somebody in our audience that is in a place where it is sort of like a checkbox or not even a conversation on the table? How do you get buy-in, you know, or people that want to, you know, how do you find those people? They're there, you know. <laughs> so it may not even be a question of changing minds or anything, or you know, h- helping people understand why it's important. You know, maybe it's those people are there and we just haven't found them in where we are. Yeah, it's a really good. That's a really good question. I think bringing it back to what the purpose is, and it's so what I said earlier about we are here as physicians to bring quality, competent, safe care to our patients. And again, bringing in people that have different experiences, different upbringings, backgrounds, ideas, this brings in new ideas. So I think if we bring it back to we are caring for a diverse population, that's how I first phrase it. Because some people get sensitive when we start talking about DEI, whether they feel threatened, you know, whether they feel that individuals might feel like they might become the minority because we're bringing in so many people with diverse backgrounds. And so I think getting back to the point of what our goals are and our goals are to treat people and give them the care that they want. And so that's usually how I try to introduce the conversation. That makes sense to kind of connect on the bigger picture, the bigger purpose. The bigger picture is that. I mean, that's why we're here. In terms of efforts in the field of otolaryngology among our colleagues with DEI, I think you've been part of the AOA, the Academy of Otolaryngology's DEI committee in ASO. Tell me about some of those efforts and where you see those efforts going. Yeah, so what I really appreciate about my roles on DEI committees within the different groups is that we are literally, our focus is particular, are, are different. So with AAO, our big academy, our, the umbrella of otolaryngology, our goals are a resident medical student education, bringing in diverse individuals through that. But the greater goal is for patient care. And so, you know, I've really I've enjoyed my role within AAO more because I've been able to introduce some topics to the leadership and the importance of it. You know, I think our specialty is very much behind in creating an environment in a, a diverse environment. And so I've really have enjoyed these conversations eye-opening for some because this is not a world that they live in. 
And the leadership of AEO have been receptive to those, have been grateful for, you know, some of the input that the committee and myself have provided to them. And when you look at SUO, that's more of the academic realm. And the goals are bringing in first exposure to the specialty to underrepresented in medicine, which is defined by the AAMC. So bringing in students early on and then trying to recruit them to our field. And then also looking at training and resident training and looking at curriculum and seeing how we can teach future otolaryngologists about their diverse patient population. And then when you look at ASPO, that is, you know, strictly for pediatric otolaryngologists, looking at our patient population and seeing the disparities within the pediatric realm and how we as pediatric otolaryngologists can can help kind of even out the field for our patients. Yeah. You know, in terms of curriculum building, the AAMC has great resources, the AMA, the ACS. How do you develop a curriculum for this or what topics did you, how did you know which topics or what topics have you introduced that you're like, hey, this is, these are the gaps? Yeah, that's, so that's a good question and a difficult one because I, I think still trying to create a curriculum that can be respectful teaching and you know, trying to get it right. And so what I try to do is kind of mirror bigger programs and not even necessarily in our in our field, just programs that have been doing this for years and trying to kind of mirror some of those some of those topics. I think introducing just the the topic of diversity and what that looks like is what does your your patient, you know, your patient that is in a wheelchair are you examining your patient in the wheelchair because it's easier for you to not, you know, get this patient out of the wheelchair into the chair and then giving them a full physical examination? There was a survey that came out with disabled individuals, individuals with a disability, where most, I think it was like over 80%, were never taken out of their chair for their physical examination. And that, just that one thing like my mind was like wow we don't do it because it takes an extra five minutes we're thinking about our next patient and you know so I think when things like that right just introducing topics it doesn't always have to be black or white doesn't have to be race we're talking about all individuals in our pediatric world a patient who is 13 years old and I walk in and the patient tells me that their name and the name is not their name on the chart and being respectful, being calling them by the name that they want, calling them their pron- the, the pronouns. And it, regardless, it, if it doesn't match the chart, it does not matter. And But these are all things that I didn't learn this in medical school. I learned by making a mistake and walking into a room and let's say the chart's name is Amber and Amber doesn't want to be called Amber. Amber wants to be called Austin, let's say. And me, a gay woman, black. Hey, Amber. No, my name's not Amber. My name is Austin. And please don't call me she. And put it in my mouth. 
you know, so when I think about now teaching and still learning, these are all examples that, you know, really, yeah, just, just, it's just important for us to recognize, you know, our patients, our patient population. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point. It leads to the question of, you know, do we really know who our patients are? Do we really, you know, where our patients come from? Do we know what community or what communities are true? You know, we talk about like, oh, this is, you know, a big freestanding children's hospital or university or practice, and it's a large catchment area. Well, do we know who we're catching? <laughs> you know, like, do we know who's coming? And, you know, what, and you could, you could even just like, look at, for example, zip code, and it may be, you know, transportation, you know, of like how far somebody has to travel to come and see you, you know, like, do we even talk to our patients to know, you know, some of some of that information? And you're right, a lot of the times we're rushed, you know, that's not, that's not why they're there, quote, right? But it, that's important, because that plays a role in why they're there or how the treatment outcome might be affected, you know, of what you decide that plan might be. It may or may not work and that might play a big role. So, and I, you know, it's interesting and I don't know if it's still happening now, but I think only two, three years ago, ACGME, one of the questions on the fellowships was, you know, for the fellowship, pediatric Odo fellowship program was kind of like, was basically, you know, do we get to do a good enough job as a fellowship of knowing who our patients are, who their families are, where they're coming from. And it goes beyond a box that they fill out on their demographic sheet. And, you know, even if that is all you look at, the question is thinking about what that means and how that might impact the overall, you know, patient care, the relationship, expectations, communication, you know, or gaps or blind spots, which we all have. I mean, Right. Like and that and that's okay. There there's nothing wrong with them as long as we're able to, okay, acknowledge, learn from it, and how do we, you know, see clearer, if you will, see better. Yeah. <laughs> going forward. No, absolutely. But yeah. You bring up a really good point. So what I've been doing recently is just because I'm new and even though I'm from California, never lived out here in Sacramento and don't really know like a lot of the area out like outside of an hour away. So for my patients, I like click on their box and I'm like, I want to know where, where, they, where they're coming from. I want to know how far they drove. I want to know, you know, so, so what I've been doing, I'm like, okay, haven't heard of this place before. And, and I'll walk in and I'm like, yeah, you know, so wow, th- you guys drove th- three hours to get here. It's like, thanks for coming. Thanks for showing up. And then I'm like, and I ask them like one thing about their, like their town, because number one, I'm curious. But number two, I yeah, I think it's important for us to know who our patients are and where they're coming from. And like I've learned, one parent owns a little market, and and she and the mom says, "Yep, they're come. They came four hours for their appointment." And yep, we we own this market. Anybody, if you ever are driving up to Oregon, you will see this market. Is what they is what they say. We're one exit off, and this is where people come, and this is where they get A, B, and C. And I look at the market, and I was like, wow, like this is like super cool. And I, you know, so again, when we talk about diverse, it doesn't have to be like the gay black chick, right? Like it could be someone coming from a town of a thousand people and, every, you know, three generations working at the store, and they, 
took a van down four hours, that also to me is a diverse patient. Yeah. You know? Yeah. In terms of delivery, you know, we're talking about, you know, the more we get to know who our patients are, I think that helps us, you know, deliver more equitable care. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, efforts in our field that have been made in terms of delivering equitable care or research with health equity? You know, we had Alex Chu on Backtable ENT, who's started the Health Equity Consortium Collaborative, which is very cool in terms of equitable research, multi-center, looking at outcomes. But tell me what, what you've seen. I was just thinking about Alex, too, because, you know, he's who got me into ENT. So like, well, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. He wants like a really, I hold him very dear close to me. Yeah. The, I don't know Alex too as well as you would do, but he's great. He's like super bright and excited and wants to, is passionate about this specifically. So, yeah. His passion is, it's palpable, which I'm sure you felt through chatting with him. But back to your question in terms of delivering equitable care. So for me, I'm, I'm like lost. I'm lost in what's the word out of touch with the adult world because my patients are all pediatric patients. So I can only speak on the, in the pediatric side, I think, but I think we have to continue asking questions. We have to continue to recognize that there are disparities, that not all patients are treated equal, that patient outcomes are dependent on our treatment. I mean, just recently, it's been a known fact that pregnant Black women have a higher mortality rate than any other race. This has been going on for years, decades, likely centuries, and now the studies are out. So someone decided that they were going to look at this, and now it is a known thing. So as for me as a Black woman, when I was pregnant, I made sure, we made sure that we found somebody that was a minority because of this known fact. And so I think in terms of our research, again, our specialty is a little behind in recognizing what these disparities look like and what an equitable treatment looks like in our specialty. And so I think, you know, going back to what Alex is doing, literally starting from ground zero and trying to figure out these answers. And I know that was kind of like a long way to say that I don't have an answer to that because I think that we are, we're just like behind. Yeah. In your um, day-to-day though, like you have residents and, and trainees and medical students, how do you find in your day-to-day these things come up? How do you point it out or, you know, how do you talk to your trainees and medical students? Because some of that, a lot of, you know, maybe it's not delivered, you know, we don't have huge curriculums as of yet in some of our programs on our societies. You know, we don't have like a lot of standardized ways of, you know, education through this. But a lot of education in residency and medical school is what experience you have with the person that you're shadowing or, you know, watching in surgery or, you know, your team that you're working with. And a lot of it comes down to when we're the attendings, right? When we're able to, you know, and it's one of those where we have to kind of A, see it and be able to pick it out of, hey, this is this woman that, you know, when we go in, we're going to need an interpreter 
and I'm going to prep the interpreter outside the room because I want to make sure that everybody's on the same page about what the, you know, questions and make sure nobody, you know, they don't have to look up something or, you know what I mean, in terms of because some of the things that we get into anatomically or whatnot can be, you know, complicated or whatever. Or, you know, we go in, yeah, we have the interpreter, but you know, make sure we make eye contact with the patient. Don't just talk through the interpreter or, you know, how do you do that sort of day to day in your practice? Because a lot of that, you know, you'll do naturally. Yeah. But when you were, when you were talking, that's what I was thinking about. I think that's like the best example is having an interpreter. So I had a situation one at one point where I walked in and the a trainee was using broken Spanish with patients. And the patient's parent was obviously uncomfortable, but did not want to ask for an interpreter. And and the kid, the kid's bilingual, so the kid understands, but the kid's eight, let's say, hypothetically eight years old. So I walk in and I can see there's some discomfort happening. And so I apologize and say, excuse me, we're... I'm going to get the interpreter if you are okay with that. And the mom was like, thank you. You know, got the interpreter. We did the visit. And then afterwards, I just chatted with the trainee and was just like, you know, I I recognize that you were trying to be helpful, but you have to think how you would feel. You have to put your, you have to put yourself in that parent's shoe. Let's say that you were living somewhere, traveling somewhere and and English was not the first language there. And you're in there with your child and somebody is using broken English to chat with you about your child's care. How would that make you feel? And we're at this place that has a hundred languages for you press a button on the thing now and it gives you the language. So, I mean, there's no reason to not to not use the service. The service is amazing. I've learned I've learned so much about language. Like, because wow. These are like, it's language is a whole other thing. It's my, it, I love it. It's amazing. But like we have this service, it takes 30 seconds to press the button. You know, we cannot go into each room trying to save time. We have to treat every patient interaction how you want to be treated as a patient and as a potential parent or guardian. And so I'm very like, I'm very meaningful with, with that. And, and one thing I really do try to teach students and residents is the outside of the medicine part, the interactions and treating your patients that don't look like you, don't have the same experience as you. How can we make them feel comfortable so that they want to come back to seek care? Yeah, you know, that's a great example because if, you know, to have to explain not only your own health issue, but your child's in a different language outside of your home country or wherever, you know, it, with a different language, it is, it is difficult and there's a lot of uncertainty and it just doesn't always feel <laughs> right. You're just hoping that the message is, is okay. And also it's important, I think, to give patients the option of, hey, we have translation services or we have an interpreter. Do you feel comfortable with, you know, where we're going? And if you do, great. And if not, we could we could do that because they should also know that that option is there because that empowers them right it gives them a sense of okay like there's somebody or some a service that's going to be able to help clear up some of the you know communication to take this barrier down a little bit 
Yeah, just last week, I walked into a patient's room and usually on the chart, it'll tell you if they need an interpreter or not. And I missed it. And so I, it was a post-op visit and I went through this entire visit and the mom had like very short answers from the questions I was asking. And then I was like, didn't feel great about like the girl, like the patient was doing fine, but I just didn't feel great about the interaction. And so she left, I sat back down and I looked and I was like, crap, she needed an interpreter and she didn't like, and I missed it. So then I called the mom with an interpreter and I was like, apologized. And then was like, you know, with the interpreter, do you have any questions about the visit? And the mom was just like, I can't believe you called back. Most people just kind of, you know, move along. But I felt, again, I put her in my shoes. I'm like, your daughter just had surgery and, you know, she has an incision on her neck. Like, do you have, you know, do you have questions about this? <laughs> and that just, I like, again, like kicked myself for not, I usually check. I really, I really try to be, you know, thoughtful with all of these interactions and, and whatnot. But then uh, the resident was like, wow, you called back. I'm like, yeah, I called back. Like, again, put yourself in in this mom's shoes so yeah and hopefully this mom now you know going forward can potentially ask like hey i don't you know is there an interpreter or you know what are my options so that or hey i don't quite get it you know maybe now she realized hey we want you to understand right we want you to know what's going on and feel comfortable with your care tell me a little bit you know we talked about you know being a part of a team you know a group of people that you know, share the mission, the, you know, of diversity and equity inclusion, increasing that in our field and our colleagues and how we deliver care and education. Tell me a little bit about allies, you know, who is an ally and, you know, are they important? Yeah, so great question and and topic. I mean, you could literally have an entire podcast on this because that's how important it is. In most cases, especially in our field, our allies usually don't look like us and so it's important to this is why it's important to have an Alex Chu we'll use as an example because he sits in a leadership position and then becomes an ally I mean he was he got the he for she award because he was an ally for women for in our specialty bringing them into leadership positions mentioning people's name and saying, hey, she would be great. And so the importance of an ally is it's vital. It's vital for anybody that is gender, race, minority to bring them into positions where their voice can be heard. It's the only way that DEI programs can A, be created and B, exist and and continue to be successful are is through allyship and through individuals that support that support the cause so we don't need allies to create a program we just need them to say okay lead the way and let me introduce you to someone that can help you yeah this is important this is important and yeah and how can we create, help you create the path? Right. <laughs> how do we support it? Let me know what I can do to help to support you in this, in this venture. So a lot of allies, though, aren't in leadership positions. 
right? Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of Alex Chu's. I mean, they're wonderful. Uh, Alex Chu's wonderful, and he's a big leader. And we probably do have Alex Chu's that are our colleagues that don't maybe have all the leadership positions that Alex Chu has. How, as a colleague, you know, where maybe you don't, you're not the division chief or the chair, right? Or the hospital CMO, you know, how, as colleagues, can you also, what are things you can do for allyship? Yeah, it's just about being supportive. So, for example, when I announced to the department, we're going to develop a DEI program and in, in the future curriculum for residents and faculty and staff, and then a supportive partner in your group. How can I help? What can I do? Or, hey, I found this paper. It might be like really something that we can we can add to the curriculum. Or I have this knowledge gap that, you know, if I have this knowledge gap, that I'm sure our trainees do as well, or some of them do. How can we implement this? This is what I have found. I just think giving ideas, being supportive, or even, hey, I don't have the bandwidth to actually help you with this committee, but this is great and thank you. You know, that's all really that people ask for, I think. So we talked about some of the, you know, deficiencies that our field still has, which is, you know, creating DEI programs, having more education regarding DEI in our training programs, in our societies, at our meetings, with recruitment and research and delivery of care. What if you find yourself in a state where, you know, you do have bans on DEI initiatives for state-sponsored programs? For example, in Texas, you know, uh, Florida, how do we, as a, how do we help our colleagues, our trainees, or, you know, what are your thoughts this is tough. And it's tough with the, yeah, legislative initiatives that are anti-DEI. And I think the best way right now to support our colleagues who have been leaders in, in this work, who live in places that don't support the initiatives and efforts, it's why it's important for us to continue to go to meetings and have these panels on DEI work and initiatives. You know, our meeting coming up is in Tennessee, which has anti-LGBTQ plus legislations and legislations that are anti-women. And I've had many colleagues that are just uncertain if they should go to the meeting because of this. But one thing that I've appreciated about our academy is keeping the our diverse topics as panels. And so I think it's important to continue to use our voice, to continue to teach, to continue to educate individuals that are not seeing what we're seeing, not supportive with, with the initiatives and and then also reminding and teaching the why of why we're doing this. You know, I I look at, I was talking to someone very recently who lives in a state that has starting to ban some DEI initiatives within the college and medical schools and, and whatnot and having to change the names of their, like their titles and changing the names of funding and scholarships and 
changing the, the the descriptions. I mean, I think it's it's wild. I'm like, what? But I think it's important for us to continuing to just really push on why this is important and why we're doing this. And it's not just to it's not just a talk. Again, it goes back to our patients. This is yeah. the why. I think it's a great point you make about showing up, you know, showing up to the conferences and, you know, showing up to the, whether it's the panel as a guest, getting on as a panelist, asking questions, you know, if you are in the the meeting room, the boardrooms, wherever, showing up and, you know, whether it, it does matter and it does make a difference. And I, and I think that, you know, as a society, the American Academy of Otolaryngology and, you know, ASPO, and, you know, we're lucky that on the national level, we have lots of really great societies that, you know, do want to push this forward. And, you know, even on a larger scale, you know, we have the AAMC, the AMA, you know, accreditation bodies, ACGME, you know, pushes this forward as well as, hey, this is a very important part of how we deliver medicine and our patient outcomes. And it goes back to the why that you've been been continuing to point out. And I'm wondering if, you know, if there'd ever be a point which, you know, even the American Board of Otolaryngology is like, hey, you know, for CME there, it, or your work accreditation, it's important to, you know, have uh, one or two hours, you know, every year when it comes to DI education and training. Because if we're not able to have some of these programs in certain states, that unfortunately is only going to continue to widen the gap. And we, you know, we see some of this in gender affirming care across the U.S. in terms of what what you can and can't offer patients and who you're seeing if you're training or practicing in the state of California or, you know, the state of Tennessee, Texas, et cetera. And so we, as a specialty, we want to stay cohesive and have common goals and values as well as we advance our care. Absolutely. I, I was just going to add with that, that, you know, and I think it's important to I think, and this might go back to one of your previous questions, but I think people kind of get confused when they start thinking that it's it's a political thing. And it's like, this is not a political thing. This is human rights. And and so, and I think that's one thing that is, it's important to separate those because I don't need to have the same political views. My My views are, and the reason why these DEI initiatives, it's not a political initiative. It's a human rights initiative. It's, again, for our patients, for equitable care. And I really just wanted to like just put that out there because I think that's why some people might tippy-toe around some of these topics because they think it's political. Media has made it political, but it's not. Yeah. As we start to wrap it up, Erin, any final pearls or thoughts? You know, I just think that it's really important for all of us to remember why we have these conversations. You know, it's not to push an agenda. It's really at the bottom, the whole at the core of all of these initiatives, it's for our patients. We became physicians to care for patients and not everything that we learned was in medical school or residency. We have to continue to ask questions. We have to continue to know and remember our why. And when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, if it's one thing, 
and I've said this 10 times in the last hour, if it's one thing, it's to improve patient care, the end. Like that's how I feel with why all of these initiatives are important. And we have to keep pushing them so that we can someday have a red patient, blue patient, a patient that looks totally different than us, that we can give them the same care as they all three of these patients are getting the same care. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Are you on any social media or if any of our listeners wanted to reach out to you to learn more about DEI and the curriculum program that you're building? Yeah. Like I told you, I'm a 90-year-old woman living in my body with technology. Yeah, I have an Instagram, my professional Instagram that I'm still working on, but it's Aaron Fawcett, MD. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Erin. It's wonderful to talk with you today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was a great time. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.